The rest of us, let's open up our Bibles to Galatians chapter 6. As you know, we've been going through the book of Galatians here for the last few months. We started in February, or February as they would call it, as it's written. But anyways, we started uh, here a few, several months ago. We're in chapter 6. We're getting ready to finish this up and jump right into the book of Ephesians. So open up your Bibles to Galatians chapter 6, and I want to read verses. Actually, I'm going to start in verse uh, five, chapter 5, verse 26. Uh, let's go ahead and start in 25. And it says this, If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. Brothers, if anyone is caught in a transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But let each one test his own work, and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor. For each will have to bear his own load. Let the one who is taught the word share all good things with the one who teaches. Father in heaven, thank you once again for this portion of scripture as we dive in. And we recognize that your word is truth. And Lord, we do not deviate. We walk right through each word, each verse, each chapter, each book. And I just thank you for the, the, just the faithfulness that you've given us and the faithfulness that we return back to you. So lead us this morning in all things. We pray these things in Jesus' name. And everyone says, amen and amen. Paul knew the problems that arise in any Christian society. That the best of people can slip, mess up, fall. Uh, the word Paul uses is parapatoma. And parapatoma does not mean a deliberate sin. It's more like a sin that where you're walking on shaky ground or walking on slippery ground and you slip. The question is, what are you doing on this shaky ground? Now, there's some sin that we do, which is, uh, well, the, the sin that, that Paul, uh, as he calls it, is, uh, is an evil sin. And it's an evil sin that... That seems that we rush to it. There's sin that we kind of, we know that we're going into it. And we know what it is that we are falling into or at least running to. And uh, we try to get these two confused. But we all sin. We all mess up. We all slip. And somehow, somewhere, somebody needs to come alongside us and help us up. Now the danger of those who are really trying to live the Christian life is that we're apt to judge the sins of others harshly. It's, it seems that the things that we see in other people that we don't like in ourselves, we tend to point the finger at. We tend to be looking and investigating and have these uh, binoculars, or, and we'll talk about that here in just a little bit, a little microscope, or a, uh, you know, just trying to look at somebody and see what, what is actually going on in their life. And you know, that can be very dangerous as well. Now, there are some who have tried to follow and comply with all that the Lord is doing, and some who just don't care. They could care less, and it, it, it comes to a point where somebody has to do something. We have to speak up. Something, somebody has to do something in their life. But sin is a reality in every Christian's life, as we've been talking about. We've been talking about how sin, and Paul showed us here in chapter 5, that when we do the works of the flesh, and we went through that whole list, Paul says, when you are working in the flesh, it is tiring, it's difficult. But when you walk in the Spirit, and he, we went last week through the nine characteristics of the fruit of the Spirit. In the fruit of the Spirit, it's one fruit. In the works of the flesh, it's all these many types of works. And that wasn't the whole list. 
It wasn't a, it was just a compilation that Paul had. Jesus had another list and uh, Paul had another list for it, that we saw in first Corinthians. And so there's, there's these things that continually tap into our flesh and it will continue to struggle with them. But as Paul had said, and we talked about this a couple of weeks ago, that if you continue in this sin, in this habitual sin, if you know that it's wrong and you continue in it, then there's something wrong with the believer. Now, there are things that we do and we recognize it. We repent as we're supposed to. We walk away and we say, Lord, please forgive me. We are like the repentant sinner. We are like the publican, the tax collector that comes to the altar. The Pharisee comes up and he says, God, I thank you. That you've given me all these blessings. And I thank you for all that you've done. And their prayer was this. I thank you, God, that you didn't make me a slave, a woman, or a tax collector. And those were his prayers to God. Thank you, Lord, for not making me like one of those guys in San Bernardino. At least I'm not like those guys. And this busted up, broken uh, publican, tax collector, he comes and he cried the prayer of repentance. And he says, have mercy on me. That is the genuine sinner's prayer, where he recognizes that there's something wrong. He gets up and he walks. Now, this is a parable, but we know from the stories that Jesus have told, or that are told to Jesus. He went into Zacchaeus' house, and Zacchaeus was a, a tax collector, and, and he told Zacchaeus to, to go back and pay back everybody. Actually, Zacchaeus not thought, of, thought of all that by himself. He says, I'm going to go back and pay everybody off. Everybody that I had ripped off, I'm going to double it. I'm going to give them back more than what I took from them. Jesus says, repentance is truly coming to this house. Salvation is coming to this home. And so the, the sin that we fall into, this sin that just seems to be nagging us all the time. And for you, it might be a little bit different than me. And, uh, you know, it might be different than your neighbors, even from your spouse. And, and it's different for all of us. But there is a sin at times when it knocks us down and it causes us to stumble. And, you know, all of us, we sin because none of us are perfect. As a matter of fact, John says in 1 John 1, 8, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. And the truth is not in us. As a matter of fact, he goes on to, goes on to say in verse 10, if we say we have not sinned, we make him, which we're ta he's talking about God, a liar. And his word is not in us. For we all stumble, James says, in many ways. And if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is perfect. He's a perfect man and is able to bridle his whole body. He's being facetious there, of course, because none of us can be perfect. And so sin, the result of sin, we, we lose our confidence. We lose our confidence in ourselves. We lose our confidence in God. We lose our confidence when we sin and when we know that we're in sin. The bad thing about the sin that we cause or that we're doing in our life, we don't want anybody to know. We want to keep that under covers. We don't want that exposed. But you know, who knows? More importantly than me or your neighbor or your spouse is, well, of course, God. God is the one that has all eyes on all of us. And we lose confidence in ourselves. We lose that joy of the spirit that God has given us, the fruit of the spirit, the love, the joy, the peace. And it's hard to bring that up when we are living in sin. Many times people come up to you and say, Pastor, I just can't seem to connect with God. I say, well, you know, what's going on in your life? And most of the time, it's something that's happening within their life. And they confess it. And I says, well, what does God want you to do? And here's the funny part. Is when, I, when they bring it out, they confess it. And then I ask them, what does God want you to do? They generally sometimes tell me, I think I'm going to pray about it. You know, you already know what God wants you to do. 
You've already confessed that to me, and you're going to pray about it? Come on. Just do what God's called you to do. Sin weakens uh, our anticipation of Jesus Christ. Now, look at this. When we are in sin, it weakens that anticipation of his second coming. Jesus Christ is returning, amen? He's coming back, amen? And so when we're in sin, we don't want him to show up right now. There are times, I'm sure, I mean, it would be great if Jesus Christ showed up when we're in church and really celebrating. But, you know, there are, th there are places that we've been. And, and I know that in the back of my head, in the back of your head, you're probably thinking, man, I pray, I pray Jesus Christ doesn't come now. John puts it this way in 1 John 2, 28. And now, little children, abide in him so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame. At his coming. And so when we are in sin, it causes us to shrink. You know, oh God, I just, let me work this through. Let me get this done. I can do this on my own. Sin defeats and destroys our usefulness. It defeats and destroys our youth, usefulness. The spiritual gifts that you've been given, God is not working them through you because of sin. He's holding back. And, it's, it, it, and you know, Paul, he, by, by the way, he, he compares himself to an immoral believer who would, like a, would link up to a, to a harlot or to the Lord. He says, you know, how can you guys do this? You cannot be working in the spirit when you are sleeping with other women, harlots, prostitutes. In 1 Corinthians 6, he says, Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute because becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. You cannot use the temple of the Holy Spirit for inappropriate acts. And it, and it hinders what God wants to do in your life. Living in sin. Sin acting in a believer's life. Sin affects other people. It affects you. It affects others. It even affects unbelievers. It affects people around us. The sin cannot be prevented from infecting other, other believers as well. In the way they talk or the way we speak or the things that we do and the places we go and the, the people we hang out with. It, it's, it's infectious. And, and unless a strong believer comes up and says, whoa, you know, we need to stop this. This has to stop. But we are one body. 1 Corinthians 12, 13 says, For by one spirit we were all baptized into one body, the body of Jesus Christ. I think the hardest and the, the, one of the things that affects many pastors, and I was just going to say myself, but you know, it affects many pastors, and I've talked to other pastors, is to see people live in sin and speak to them, yet they don't seem to care. And so sometimes we wonder, is that person genuinely saved? I had this conversation just yesterday with somebody else, and uh, you know, it was, it was difficult. It's difficult because, well, very close to me, very close to me. But see, the, the one priority that the church has, the priority that we have, it's not to announce to the world that, oh yes, we have, uh, we're part of this 4th of July celebration and we want to be a part of that. I don't know if you guys have noticed or not, but we really try and, and we're very careful in the, the celebrations and the, and the holidays that we celebrate. Because we don't want that to be the focus of the church in any way, shape or form. You know, we, we, we celebrate not Easter, but we celebrate Resurrection Sunday. And right prior to Resurrection Sunday, we do celebrate the Passover. Now, we're not Jewish, but we celebrate it to show what Jesus Christ has done for us through the Passover. And I think we'll, we'll probably even celebrate Christmas. 
And we know that that's not the birth of Jesus Christ. And right before Christmas, we have a Thanksgiving banquet, but for appreciation for our firefighters. And so, in a sense, we really don't focus on all these other holidays, which we could. We used to do Memorial Day, Fourth of July. We do all kinds of stuff during the holidays, and we take advantage of it. But every time we do that, we take away from the Word of God. We take away from the glorification and the, and the exaltation of God and Jesus Christ, our Savior. Any time that we do anything, that, that just we only have an hour. Okay, an hour and a half. We only have an hour to exalt the Savior and glorify God. And I want that to be the focus in all our lives. And the church needs to be ready to receive her bride. And the church's goal is to be holy, is to be blameless, is to be spot-free, clean, pure. Can you imagine a bridegroom coming to a vile, wicked, evil bride and saying, you're going to be my bride? And our, the church needs to focus on its holiness, just like every single person. Because the church is not the building, the church is you. And holiness is our part in the church being holy. God can do amazing things through broken vessels. Vessels that, he had, that have wasted their life and, and have broken down and got back up. And, and of strong believers come up behind him and lifted him up. And given him the, the, the tools that he needs, and God can use a person just like that. But he cannot use a dirty vessel. He cannot use an unholy vessel. And church, our first important pursuit for all of us is a pursuit of holiness. And so we, we, we pray, we, we study, we gather, we focus on God's word. What does God want us to do? Now, the mission of the church is to glorify God and exalt the Savior. But it's also to evangelize as well. And, but we cannot evangelize effectively and we cannot glorify God and exalt the, the Savior unless we are pure vessels. Now, there seems to be a contradiction there. Well, first of all, you're saying that we're sinners. And now you're saying that we need to be pure vessels. How does that happen within our lives? Would we just sit here and listen to what you have to say, read the Bible? Do we, how do we do this? Well, what Paul is talking about here is exactly that. He says in verse 26 of Galatians chapter 5, Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. The, the apostle, what he does is he admonishes believers to look at their own lives and to stop boasting. Stop boasting and being conceited. Yes, there's people around me that are less fortunate than me. Less fortunate than me. There are people that are sinning more than I am. There are people that are, well, you've heard that before. I've shared that with you before. We compare ourselves with other people. We compare ourselves with those that are less fortunate. Sometimes I think we like to have people that are less fortunate than us just so that we can feel better about ourselves. But if you want to compare yourself with anybody, compare yourself with God's standard. We all fall short of the glory of God. All of us fall short of the glory of God. As a matter of fact, in Philippians chapter 2, and this is in your outlines, it says, Do nothing from selfish ambitions or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let, us, let each of us, each of you, look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. That word conceit is the word that is used in the, in the six things, no, seven things that God hates. Haughty eyes. Haughty eyes is very conceited, very, you know, I'm better than you. I'm more, I'm more important than you. I don't sin as much as you. And Paul says to the Philippians, don't do that. Don't do that. 
These characteristics of believers who are not walking in the spirit, but who are in the flesh. And therefore, what they're doing is they disrupt the body of the fellowship. Now, I thank God that within our church, in small as it is, and even at the times that we were larger, you know, there, there was this cohesiveness, this unity, this fellowship, because there was, it was built in a bond of love. And I pray that it continues to do so. When people come and they attend our church, they say, you know, this church is so loving. And I'm always amazed to hear that, you know, because, of, well, yeah, every church should be like that, right? And the response usually is, eh, not really. Like, okay, I don't want to know. I don't want to know. But we need to do our part. Take no part in the, in the Ephesians 5, in your outlines again. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. Paul is saying that we need to expose those things. And we need to try to help a believer not to kick him out of the church, not to make him feel bad, but to restore him to this life of holiness that we have been called to be. God says, be holy. That's not a suggestion. That's a command. He's telling you, he's telling me to be holy. How do I be holy? How do I do that? How do I gather that type of energy or that strength to be perfect? Well, first of all, holiness or holy is perfection is God. And it has that idea of God being perfect. And perf uh, holiness and holy is pure, which has that, in, uh, the implication that God is pure as well. But holiness, when it's used in the Old Testament, is he says, I don't want you to be common. I don't want you to be like everybody else. God tells the Levites, tell my people not to be common but to be holy. That's the opposite of holy is common. Don't be like everyone else. Don't follow the crowds. Listen to God's word. Being holy is being uncommon, different. Your life should be different. It's amazing. I was uh, here just a few weeks ago. I was talking to a couple of guys that were helping us out. As we were getting ready for our revival, and uh, we're talk, yeah, we're going to have we're going to have a revival. We're going to do you know some uh, some kids are going to be taken care of, and there's just some things that we're going to do. And the guy says to me, says, "Well, I go to church." His coworker says, "You go to church?" And I told the guy, says, "That's not a good thing. That's not a good thing, because sometimes we give out the message that we're not Christians." And this is why each one of us, as Titus says, as for a person who stirs up division after warning him once and then twice, have nothing to do with that person anymore. Knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, he is self-condemned. And I break this rule all the time. I cannot seem to let go of people that I know that are hurting. I cannot seem to say, okay, I talked to you once and I've talked to you twice and that's it. Me, I cannot do that. I come back and I pray and I ask and I, I, I you know, it, it, for me it's difficult and I know it might be for you as well. But this is a rule that God put out and, and Titus uh, writes it out as for a person who stirs up division after warning him once and then twice have nothing more to do with him. Nothing. And that's difficult, beloved, especially when they're people that you really know. Paul repeatedly warned the church in Corinth. Paul repeatedly warned the people in Ephesus. Paul repeatedly warned the people in Galatia. Paul repeatedly warns every kind of sin from disorderly contact to immorality to false teaching is to be disciplined. Every sin, everything from the beginning to the end 
It needs to be disciplined. And when we say disciplined, not, you know, standing out and bringing them down and beating them up just so we can kick them out. Every Christian needs to learn from the newest believer to the oldest experienced leader needs to have this gentle kindness in being able to correct a loved person, especially a person from the church. And all of us need to be subject to that type of discipline. To be spiritually healthy and effective in ministry, the church must deal with sin within its own ranks. Because I'll tell you something, beloved, the world is judging you all the time. And they judge you and they look at you and they, and they won't discipline you. And, and I, I think that what happens within a church sometimes, we don't want to approach anybody as far as, you know, disciplining. And again, it sounds like a very hard word, but really when it's done in love, it's encouraging, building up. And that's what we're going to talk about, restoring a sinning brother. Uh, and, and sometimes there's sins that we say, hey, it's no big deal, it's no big deal. He'll, he'll grow out of it. You know, I'm not going to say anything. And a lot of times we don't even realize that we're doing anything. Sometimes we don't even realize on the things that we are participating in or doing. So as often as the case, there is, there is this danger. There is this danger of people going out and looking through a magnifying glass. I am a inspector. I'm an, an inspector or I'm a fruit inspector. I, I, I'm this, this God-given person that goes around looking for people's faults. And I want to see everything that's in your life so that I can point it out. See, that's not what we're talking about. We're not talking about pointing out people's faults. We're not talking about uh, going in because if you look hard enough, you will find sin in everybody's life. It's the sin that distorts and, dist and, and distracts. It's the sin that takes away from a person being able to use a spiritual gift. It's the sin that, 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 that seems to build up within the church. It's that leaven that Jesus Christ talked about. A little leaven just infects the whole lump of dough. And so here's, here's what Paul is saying. He says here in Galatians chapter 6, verse 1, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. In a spirit of gentleness. And, and sometimes for those that have the gift of exhortation, which is another way of saying encouragement. For those that have the gift of exhortation, it's kind of hard to sound gentle because you really believe that what you're doing is correct. People with the gift, the spiritual gift of exhortation, they see a wrong and they want to right it right away. That's the spiritual gift of exhortation. They see something in somebody else's life or in a uh, community or in a law or whatever the case may be, and they want to right it right away. That is wrong. This is right. Black and white, nothing in between. And what happens is we come across being very judgmental. This is why Paul says you need to do this in a spirit of gentleness. It's something that all of us have to learn how to do. And then he says, keep watch on yourself, lest you also or too be tempted. So I need to pick my brother up. I need to pick my brother up. I need to pick my brother up so that I can hold him up and, and build him up as we move through this process of doing life together, of doing church together. The first responsibility of a believer is to seek after those who have fallen. You know people who have fallen. You know people who have messed up. You know people that are you know, down and out. The problem is that a lot of times that if I go up to him and start showing him his faults, he's going to turn around and start showing me my faults. Or I, maybe I don't feel confident enough to be able to bring somebody else's faults out. Or maybe what it is is, you know, 
You know, that guy got himself into that trouble. Let him get himself out. And all the while, he's messing up his life, the life of the person next to him, the life of his church, the life of his uh, job situation, wherever he's at. And it overtakes him because nobody spoke up. There have been a lot of times that I, I've dealt with people. Nobody's ever spoke up. I was talking to this, this other person in, in ministry here this, a while back. And uh, he was just let go. Sorry, we don't need you anymore. After what? Eight, we, we planted the church together. What happened? There's things that, that took place in this. You know, we did this together. Well, you know, there was just some stuff that happened and this happened. And, you know, and uh, how come nobody brought it to my attention? <laughs> Somebody should have said something. I thought I was doing all right. I don't know how a person can think that he's doing all right, to be honest with you. But that's what comes out a lot of times. A lot of people, they believe that they're doing okay. But if we're caught in a transgression, if we're caught in such a way, not to nab him or to sneak up on him or to be an investigator, not to be, you know, hiding out and say, aha, I caught you. But there are times that, you know, we see something. And you've heard that expression, see something, say something. If you see something, you know, brother, don't do that. You shouldn't say that. You shouldn't kid like that. I've been told that quite a bit because I am somewhat sarcastic sometimes. And I say things that just don't come out right. And I've got to be stopped right there. And I've got to stop myself. And there's times that I've stopped myself and I've had to ask for forgiveness as well. The, the, the transgression that is happening, it's the basic idea of stumbling or falling. As, as a person is walking, all of a sudden he just trips. That's the transgression. That's the word that is being used there. The man does not really commit the sin with intention or premeditation, but rather it just kind of, you know, he fails at something. Uh, you know, it's kind of like right in the middle of a yellow light and the red light, and you just floor it anyways, and you get pulled over. You know you were, I know, I, sh I should have stopped. I was going too fast. We well, shouldn't have been going too fast. I, okay, whatever I say is going to get me in trouble. Oh, is that just me? or Okay, well, I don't know. Uh, and, and so what happens is that uh, we simply do not live walking by the Spirit. And I said this here a couple of weeks ago and last week as well. When you're working in the deeds of the flesh, you cannot work and walk in the Spirit. But when you're walking in the Spirit, you will not work the deeds of the flesh. And it's, it's either or. And you cannot do both at the same time. And it, it holds you back. And it should be noted that uh, where maturity is, is uh, depending on one's progression and growth, every person is different. And maturity is an absolute reality, and, and that is unrelated to growth. You can grow and not be mature, but you cannot be mature without growing. And, and growth, people will grow and they'll, they'll continue to be in church maybe five years, six years, seven years, and they seem to be growing, but they haven't matured. And what ends up happening is you have a, a Christian that has been going to church for 10 years, and in actuality, he's a one-year-old Christian 10 times. And so there's a lot, of, a lot of maturity that still has to take place, and this is where you and I come in and we help the brother to, to pick him up. Say, okay, look, here's some things that are taking place. Not accusatory, not, but with the spirit of gentleness. Look at what Paul says in Romans 15, verse 1. He says, we who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak. And not to please ourselves. Not just to say, hey, you know, he's on his own. Again, in 1 Thessalonians 5, 14. And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. We need to be encouraging. And if somebody comes up to you and says, you know, hey, there's some things that I'm noticing in your life. Please don't 
right away start quoting, well, the Bible says, judge not lest ye be judged. My first response is, well, where do you find that in the Bible? Well, it's in there somewhere. I know it is. I've heard preachers preach it, you know. As a matter of fact, the world knows that verse. They know it better than we do sometimes. And some of you even know where to find it. It's in Matthew chapter 7, verse 1. Jesus says, do not judge, or otherwise you would be judged by the same judgment that you use, the same standard that you're using, you're going to be judged. And if you read it a little bit further, what Jesus Christ is talking about is holding people accountable. He's talking about, you know, when you judge somebody, don't condemn them. Only God can condemn. Only God does the condemnation. But even further, as you read through chapter 7, Paul says, well, you need to watch out for the wolves in sheep's clothing. How are you going to know they're wolves in sheep's clothing unless you do some sort of evaluating, some sort of judging? And he says, you, you got to be careful. There's, you know, because a good, a good tree cannot bear bad fruit. And bad fruit doesn't come from a good tree. How do you know that? Well, you have to kind of judge that. Paul has a very interesting take on that in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 when he's talking about the immoral brother. The man that is sleeping with his father's wife, stepmom of some sort, I guess. I don't know. Paul says, you know, even the pagans, they don't even do that. And yet everyone in the church is saying, hey, that's pretty cool, brother. That's pretty good. You're doing this. And, and, and you guys turn your back on this sin. And he says, I need you to expel that man. Get rid of him. Hand him over to Satan so that if he's genuinely saved, his body will perish, but his spirit will be saved. Because he's causing a lot of damage within the church. And then he ends with this quote. He says, who am I to judge those outside the world? Are we not supposed to judge those inside the church? Let God judge that person and, and cast him out. And God does the condemnation. Now, the word that Paul is using that is used in the New Testament is the word krino. Krino is the word to evaluate, to judge, to size up, to lay alongside, to, you know, to look at um, from both ends. You know what? You know, these are oranges and these are apples. Okay. And so the word krino has that connotation of being able to judge in a sense. And that's, that's where we get our word judge. We've talked about this a few times. The Greeks, they have uh, one word to mean many things or many words to mean one thing. And so it's a complicated language sometimes. But when you do a, a careful exegetical study, uh, taking that word out and looking what it means, you'll see that we have a responsibility not to condemn judge, but to encourage or to evaluate judge. You know what, brother? Your life is not matching up to what you say you do or believe. It's not, you know, and these are things that we've learned. We've learned these things together. We sat under the same pastor. We took the same notes. We understand that we should not be gossiping, yet that's all you do is gossip. That's all you, you, you leave from here and you talk about people in church and, and that's all you do. So, so sometimes there's that element of, yes, we are supposed to evaluate, not as a fruit inspector. I've been told that, yeah, we're, we're fruit inspectors. We need to inspect every single fruit. No. <laughs> you need to encourage the brother. You're not a detective finding faults in everybody's life because you will. You'll find it. But what we need to do is help the brother Pick him up when he's fallen and lift him up. And sometimes as we go through, one of the things, let me just kind of pause right here. One of the things that we're going to do through membership class is we'll show you, we'll walk you through the process of church discipline. Once again, discipline sounds to be a very harsh word, but discipline is more of an encouraging word. In Matthew 18, Jesus talks about the process. First, you talk to him. 
Go to your brother. Talk to him. Talk to him and, and see what's going on. If you've won, if you're able to convince him, you've won him over. The process is to win people over, not to get rid of them, but to bring them back into fellowship with the church and with God. If that doesn't happen and it doesn't work, you take two or three other people with you to show him his sin. You know, again, and it's not to get rid of him, but to win him over. The whole process is a process of restoration, of restoration, restoring the brother back to the original, uh, the place where he was at. And of course, the third part is if he doesn't listen to the, the three of you guys, then bring it to the church. And if he doesn't listen to the church, then you treat him as a tax collector, a publican. Basically, what Jesus is saying, he preaches the gospel to him. Because apparently, if he's not willing to see the sin that's going on in his life, then maybe he's not saved. He hasn't heard the gospel. Or if he's heard the gospel, maybe he hasn't really, it hasn't taken its shape within him. The gospel needs to be preached to every living, single human being. Every person needs to hear the gospel. Whether he's in church, whether he, they're, they're out in the world, they need to hear the gospel. And Jesus says, you treat him as a pagan. And how do you treat a pagan? You don't shoot them. No. I mean, some of you guys want to shoot some of these pagans, but no, you don't shoot them. You don't beat them up. You give them the word. You love on them. Not just to cut them off, but you love on them. It's interesting because this word restore that Paul is using, it's a word that means to mend or repair uh, something that was broken and, and, and bringing it back to its original uh, place, like a bone that has been broken. You want to mend that bone up and bring it back up and, and fix whatever is broken in a person's life. We want to restore. We want to build up. We want to restore, which is number two. I need to hold my brother up on the back of your outline. I need to hold my brother up. That's very good because that one was left in there for you intentionally in case you had fallen asleep. By this time, it's already there. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he is something... When he is nothing, he deceives himself. But let each one tests his own work. And then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor. For each will have to bear his own load. You know, this is kind of interesting because here Paul is telling us to help and build up and bear this brother's burden. And then he tells us that we have to bear our own burden, our own load. What's going on there? Well, first of all, before we even get there, there are two different words that he's using. One of them is our personal responsibility. The burden that we have. It's the burden that Jesus Christ said, take my burden. Give me your burden and take my burden for my burden is light. It's that type of burden. It's not the oppressive burden or load that you have like Jesus Christ was carrying the cross. And do you know that there are a lot of times when we think that we can do this on our own. Somebody will come up and say, brother, there's something going on in your life. I'm good. I'm good. Don't worry about me. I can take care of this myself. You have a burden on your life, on a burden on your heart, and it's very oppressive. I see it in you. I see it in your family. And yeah, I, I can take care of this myself. That type of burden was placed on Jesus Christ. And he bore that cross, not all the way to Golgotha, if you remember correctly. Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they both say that there was this certain gentleman there. There was a certain man from Cyrene. His name was Simon. And he had two sons, Rufus and Alexander. Rufus was known to start a church in, uh, in Egypt. And, and they were from Cyrene. And they, he came up. As a matter of fact, he was told 
to carry the burden of Jesus Christ. And he was commanded by the guards to take up that cross and carry it up for Jesus Christ. Beloved, if Jesus Christ himself did not carry his own burden all the way to the cross, all the way to Calvary, what makes you think that you can do this? You need somebody alongside you. You need people that love you. You need people around you that come to you and lovingly and gently tell you there's something wrong. And you allow them to help you and build you up and hold you up. And, and continue to pour this life in you and, and pour this, you know, this, this value in you. And they pour value in you by telling you, you know what, you can do this. You have the Holy Spirit. You have the power of the Holy Spirit to lift you up and build you up. And he can work through you, especially because of what you've been through. And we have sometimes people that say, no, that's good. I'm good. I, I do this all on my own. But it's a burden that Jesus Christ himself needed help with. Now, I'm sure God could have given him that super extra power, the supernatural power. I'm sure angels could have came alongside him and, you know, just kind of lifted him up and levitated him up to the hill. Uh, it, it would have been a breeze. But there's a message in that. There's a message in that. A person that came to sacrifice, to bring the lamb to, to, to this temple, to be able, not even a Jewish person from Cyrene, a God lover is what they called him. And he came and he was the one that was commissioned as an example for all of us to follow. Some of you have some very heavy burdens on your life. Some of you have some sins that you're hiding and you're holding on to and you just don't know what to do with them. Some of you don't even know where to go. You know, if anybody were to find out, if anybody were just to know anything about me, they would laugh at me or they would probably not ask me to come back again. We're all busted here beloved. We're all vessels that are, they're cracked. We're a bunch of crackpots here. Okay. If I can say that spiritually and God will use a broken vessel. He'll, it's like your favorite cup at home. That's missing the handle, right? You got one of those. It's all scratched up and scarred up the mug that somebody gave you. The emblem is probably gone. If it was a Raiders, thank God. No, yeah, okay, I'm sorry. I took off there a little bit. You know, and this cup is just old, but you know, you will not use it if it's molded inside, will you? You will use it every single time. You'll wash it and you'll clean it out. And that's exactly what God does. He grabs you, he cleans you out, and he uses a sponge called your friend. Or he uses a scouring pad called your pastor. Or he'll use somebody that is, uh, that is lifted up and a little more mature, not perfect, but understands what you're going through to clean you out. You know, this is what Paul is asking us all to do. And unfortunately, we shy away from that. See, what James tells us in James chapter 5, he says, Therefore, confess your sins to one another. Do so. But I'm afraid what they're going to think about me. You know what they're going to think? They're going to think this. They're going to say, yeah, you're normal. I understand what you've been through. You do? Yeah. You're not the only one going through these types of struggles. Confess your sins to one another, James says. And why? So that you can be healed. You see, you confess your sins to God so that you can be forgiven. But you confess your sins to one another so that you can be healed. So that heavy weight can be just taken off. You'd be surprised. And, and this is one of Satan's tricks. What he tries to do is make you feel like you're the only one that is going through this trespass, this transgression, this sin. 
You're the only one going through this. And nobody else wants to know. And if anybody else finds out, then you're really going to be labeled as a sinner. We're all sinners, beloved. Confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. John 13, 34 says, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. Did Jesus love Matthew, the tax collector? Well, yeah, of course he did. Nathaniel? I mean, I can go through the whole list. Did Jesus love Peter? I mean, after Peter denied him three times? Did Jesus love Judas? They ate. He fed. He fed on the, on the food. He prayed for him. They, he ministered right alongside Jesus for three years. Jesus knew who he was. He still loved him. Will Jesus still love you? Of course he will. That's why he said, love one another. We, we saw this uh, a few weeks ago when we looked at Galatians chapter 5. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. Love. Love. Love your neighbor as yourself. When you love your neighbor as yourself, you see a brother that's hurting. You don't go out and point things out to him, very critical and judgmental. You don't point fingers at him. You lift him up. You say, okay, now if this was happening to me, how would I want that person to talk to me? And you respond in like way. The last thing I want to share with you, what Paul says, I need to build my brother up. Let the one who is taught the word share all good things with the one who teaches. You know, you know many, many pastors have cleverly used this verse as a uh, verse that you need to take care of your pastor. I'm the one teaching you, so you need to take care of me. Share with me what you have. There are a lot of the verses that you can actually use for taking care of your leaders. But, but this, yes, it's saying that, but this is not what Paul is trying to get across at this point. Not in the context of what he's talking about. He's not really saying, you know, share, uh, take care of your pastor. Though it infers that, and though it, it kind of works with that, Really what he's saying is, look, when you have a gift, the word for share is koinoneo, where we get our word koinonia. And koinonia is this fellowship. And it's the basic idea of sharing equally. And in the verb form, it's commonly translated as something that continues to go. The one who is taught the word and the one who teaches have a common fellowship and should share all good things together. And under this interpretation of sharing all good things together is the third step in the restoration of the fallen believer. And what is that? Paul uses the word in describing the gospel itself, the glad tidings of good things. And this is all part of what Paul has been talking about. You know, you don't need the law. Excuse me. What you need is the gospel. You don't need to follow the commandments of Moses. You need the commandments of God, but not the traditions. Not everything that all the the fathers have laid out now that you have to obey all these certain rules and regulations and ceremonies and festivals and feasts. In Galatians, as you remember correctly, they were dealing with the act of circumcision. And they were saying to all these Christians, if you're not circumcised, because you guys aren't Jewish, and if you're not circumcised, you're really not saved. It's kind of like saying, like, if you don't wear a suit and tie, you're not saved. If you don't come to our church, you're not saved. If, you don't, if you're not baptized, you're not saved. And, Jesus, and Paul is saying, no, you are saved, not because of what you do, but because of what's already been done. You have received the good news. You have received the gospel of Jesus Christ. You need to preach the gospel to other people. And he uses that word, describing the gospel. 
And we see it in other places, like in Romans and Hebrews. And it's the spiritual Christian who has picked up and held up his fallen brother and also builds him up in the word and whose good things they fellowship in together. There is this good tiding, this good gospel that, that we are able to fellowship in with. You cannot fellowship with the brother that's in sin. It's hard to do. And you probably know this. You've dealt with people that are in sin and they don't want to hear what you have to say. The worst thing that you can do is condone by saying, oh, it's okay, it's no big deal. We can still hang out. Come to church, maybe something will happen. You know, brother, you're, you're, you're breaking the fellowship that you have between me and you and God. You cannot offer your services and your praise and your worship to God in that condition. Your vessel is dirty. You need to get that vessel cleansed out. Church discipline is a difficult and somewhat tricky responsibility of the church. But we're commanded to do it. And because we're commanded to do it, we have the tools to do it if we do it in gentleness, if we do it in love, if we do this, uh, you know, and, and I, because Jesus gave us the perfect example. Talk to the guy. Bring two other people with you. Then bring it to the church. And, and I've seen this principle played out just backwards. The person sins. What do they do? They bring it to the church. And everybody knows. You know, if not, every, not to the whole church, two or three people. We need to pray for brother so-and-so. Yeah, why? Well, let me tell you. Let me tell you what's going on in his life. You know, let me tell you. And we, and we bring it up in that sense. You see, when we bring it out, and every time I've done this, first, second, third, you know, thank you for bringing it out to me. First time around. And sometimes I'm just, you know, I had a miscommunication. You know, this is what I saw. This is what I believe. And you know what? I was wrong. And a lot of times it's just a matter of squaring that out. And, 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 and instead of bringing it to the church first or to the pastor, I've had people come up and say, you know, pastor, this guy has been, have you talked to him? No, no. Well, you need to talk. No, I don't, no, I don't want to talk to him. And what I have done, I've said, hey, come here, George. We had two Georges here, so both of those Georges won't know who I'm talking about. And uh, George, come here. He says, uh, he has something to say to you. Tell him. Uh, uh, tell him. And I walk away. And whatever happened, I know that they settled it. And whatever took place. Don't do that. Don't listen to other people gossip. Don't fall for that kind of stuff. You know, you have to ask yourself. You know, if these people will gossip to you, you know that they will gossip about you. You have to ask yourself, what kind of a person does that person think I am to be able to listen to what he has to say? When we understand the principle of discipline, a lot of that is just squashed. There's a lot of backbiting, a lot of dissension, a lot of things going on within churches because we just don't follow the simple principle of discipline. Well, we do it in love, gently, as Paul is saying. And Paul is talking to a church that is pretty whacked out already. They're, they're trying to work for their salvation. They're trying to get circumcised. They're trying to do all kinds of stuff to, to be saved. Paul says, look, just talk to the brothers, okay? Just talk to them. And he gives us a very good plan on how to do so. Now, our part in all of this is to take it, as Paul had said, and, and, and use it in a spirit of gentleness and love, in a spirit of humility. Understanding that we are not to be conceited just because I'm a little bit better than you. I need to take the log out of my eye before I start trying to take a splinter out of somebody else's eye. 
There are things that, uh, that, you, that each one of us need to do. Let me ask you to stand. You know, and I don't know how this affects you personally. But I do know that all of us are responsible for this. We're responsible for this part of the scriptures. And each one of us need to adhere to what Paul is saying. Let's bow our heads. Father in heaven, thank you once again for your word and how you just laid out for us. We know that Paul was a vessel used by you. We know that he had many faults. We know that he was... Uh, so many things that were going on with him. And as he explained to us in Romans chapter 7, a lot of things that he wanted to do, but he just wouldn't do them. Things that he didn't want to do, he did. And Father, we fall right in that line as well. And I pray, Lord, that as each one of us pursue holiness, because you've commanded us to be holy, that each one of us look to our own selves first and foremost, not being conceited, not thinking more highly of ourselves than other people, that we look to, look to you as the standard, the guide. You, your word, Lord, gives us the standard, which is perfection. And that's where we need to measure ourselves, and that's where we fall short. So, Father, we thank you for uh, just the forgiveness that we have, first and foremost. And the, the power of the Holy Spirit that gives us the ability to, to discern and to see how it is that we are to walk and talk. Thank you for this letter that Paul has written, for the truth that he points out in each one of our lives and for how we are to move from this place forward. So, Father, as we come before you this morning to partake of the, uh, your table, we take, partake of this Lord's table, we do so with humility, recognizing our own evil, our own wickedness, our own sinfulness. We recognize that we cannot stand here apart from the grace and glory of the cross. And we thank you, Lord Jesus, for that. So I pray that as we take this, we surrender ourselves to you even now. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.